That lesson is on how God is better, and it talks about idols. So if you, if you don't have a, a handout, okay, there we go. <laughs> so, Julia, thank you for uh, passing those out. There's, there's some on that chair, too, if we, if we run out, Jules. But we, up to this point, have been talking about there is nothing I have done that could make you love me less and nothing I could do that would make you love me more. And now we're talking about you are all I need for everlasting joy. You see, I... Uh, Anyway, so that's the second part of the gospel prayer. And so we have these notes. As you can see, they're adapted from the Denver Institute for Faith and Work. Don't want to get accused of plagiarism. That's been a big thing in the news lately for those of you who've been watching it. Uh, For those of you who have listened to uh, Pastor Travis and I on the podcast, you may have heard my theory about the Ten Commandments, uh, which... uh, I don't know how much of a theory it is, but basically it's suzerain vassal treaty and starts with, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and, and this is what I have done and now this is what you owe me. And it starts with, thou shalt have no other gods before me. That's number one. And then everything else stems from that. That is the number one thing. I, I, you shall have no other gods before me. So number two, you should, no graven images, that reflects back to no other gods. Now, I believe that today, most of our gods aren't of the graven image variety. Very seldom do people that, that, not, that I know of. I actually, I just met with a guy this week who told me about how he has family members who are Satanists and actually have a graven image of Satan that they bow down to on a daily basis, which blew my mind to some degree, but that is what it is. But that's not common in the circles I run in. But people putting things above God is very common. People looking to other things for that which you only need from God is very common. And so in this chapter, what I thought we could talk about is first, what is an idol? Now, I don't know how many of you are bold enough to express what your idols are, and if you are, feel free to do so. Uh, but you don't have to express it. Uh, he went through a lot of he went through a lot of examples, uh, and I have a chart here identifying your idols, and it's again adapted from the Denver Institute for Faith and Work. But it talks about what are you seeking? Are you seeking power, um, winning, success, influence? Maybe you think someone else has too much say and you want more of the say in your life. That would be power. Uh, approval is where you want them to like you. Sometimes those butt heads. And he, I thought he did a good job in the chapter talking about how sometimes our idols butt heads. Um, if comfort is what you're seeking or control. So power and control tend to work together. Approval and comfort tend to work together. But there you go. But... So it says, if that's what you're seeking, what is your greatest nightmare? People around you often feel, uh, you know, used, smothered, and and it gives categories. So if you're good at identifying your own idols and you say, well, approval is what I idolize, then you know that your greatest nightmare is rejection. And so people around you can often feel smothered 
And we often, our problem is often cowardice. And this can play into what you're doing in a variety of ways. For example, uh, sometimes you are just so hesitant to make a decision. This is not always the reason people are hesitant to make decisions. But if someone says you can do A or B, and you're like, I don't want to choose, you choose. And I say this as someone who probably says that more than any of you in the room. When people ask me what do I want to do, I'm often like, I don't want to choose, you choose. Why is that? Because I want their approval. And so I am being cowardly in my ability to make decisions. The reason I'm being cowardly is because my, my nightmare is rejection and I seek approval. Okay, and that's how this works. When we have idols, it plays out in various fashions. And so these are some common forms of idolatry. You may be able to come up with a new category. You may be better than the people who wrote this chart, but these are some of the idols we have. So we're going to talk about idolatry in Scripture real quick. The, the first one, Exodus 20, verses 1 through 6. I'll go ahead and read that. If someone else wants to look up Psalm 24 and read that verse, does anyone want to claim that? No one? Miss Barbara, you'll read Psalm 24. Does anyone want to read Galatians 4? Anyone? Anyone? All right. You guys like hearing me read. That sounds terrible. All right, Exodus 20, and this is, this is the beginning of the commandments, and this is where we talk about the Suzerain Vassal Treaty. And God spake all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above. We're going to talk about that in a second or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me, and keep my commandments. When we talk about this, a lot of people will quote part of that shouldn't bow down. They're like, ah, shouldn't kneel, shouldn't do this. And, and I'm not going to argue with you on that. But it also says, and this is the part that is often neglected, uh, thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above. This is where you have some denominations as a whole and some individuals who say these pictures of Jesus that we have, it's a violation of the second commandment. Shouldn't have any likeness. You know, those paintings that exist, those are likenesses. Now, you could say, well, they're poor likenesses or they're great likenesses. I don't, you know, we don't need to get into whether or not Jesus had feathered 80s style hair. But that is in a likeness of some sort. And so when, if we are going to take the not bowing down to anything seriously, it seems to me we should take just as seriously the not creating any images. Now, if you want to say those function independently, 
uh, and that neither one is important. That's, that's a logical conclusion. But I just point that out. Okay. All right. Psalm 24. Miss Barbara, you got that looked up? Yes, ma'am. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He that has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul unto vanity, nor sworn deceitfully. Okay. So what is uh, what are the things that it says we should not do with our heart? There was one particular word she read. Six letters, starts with a V, ends with a Y. V- vanity. There you go. We should not give our souls to vanity. So when it talks about idolatry, and I put a note in here, the New Testament, a synonym for idolatry is desires. Like in, in Greek, if you will. A synonym for idolatry is the desires. So when we desire something, that is an idol. And again, he talked in the book, and I thought he did a good job of this, about how it's good to desire things. It's good to desire good things. It's good to want things. But when we desire those too much, when we desire those to the exclusion of God, when those desires become more important than Jesus being all we need for everlasting joy, which is part two of the prayer that we have, when that becomes the case, then we are... That's our idolatry. That's our idolatry playing out. What are the desires that we have that are greater? All right, I'll read uh, Romans 1, where it says, For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, having uh, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, Neither were thankful, but became vain in their imagination, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man, into birds, into four-footed beasts, and creeping things. Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lust of their own hearts, to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie, and worshiped and served the creature more than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. And so when you talk about how we make idols, here it just says we, we change the glory of the uncorruptible God into something made like us. And if that's what we're doing, whenever we degrade God into human fashion, I'm, I'm taking a class that I'm doing poorly in, in systematic theology, But one of the things it says is the way a lot of people define God is they say, okay, they take human traits and then they say we make them really, really good. And then that's how we frame God. So if we know someone that we think is generous, we say God is generous, but just so much more so. And that's how we do it. And and there there is merit to that. But one of the things is that if we are looking to frame God, when we frame Him in terms like unto us, we're degrading that. So sometimes our idol is just an incorrect view of God. We have an incorrect view of God, and because we have that incorrect view of God, we struggle to worship God. Because 
we think, again, plugging the podcast, if you listen to our episode on fathers, a lot of us, the analogy of a father, for me, it works great because my father was close to perfect. And so when, when they talk about Heavenly Father, I can conceive of a being who is very helpful. But yet, that could make me fall into the trap of just saying that God is just like a father, when in reality, he is much greater than that. Okay, and that, that could be our idol. Um, so when we talk about, you know, creating God off human things, that, that's the negative of that. So we now said, okay, that's what idols are. We've tried to identify our idols. We talked about idol- idolatry in Scripture. So the question that we hopefully can move forward with, the question that we can move on with is, how do we engage our idols with the gospel? That's the important part. If we pinpoint our idols and we say, this is where we're idolatrous, and I assume that if there are 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 12 people in here, if I counted right, if I miscounted, then, you know, that is what it is. But if there are 12 people in here, there are 12 different idols that we create. All of us have our own individual ways that we idolize things. So to overgeneralize may be tough. So the question is, is how do we approach these idols? How do we approach them with the gospel? Tim Keller says there are three approaches to looking at our idols. The first is the moralizing approach. And he says, this is where you say, my problem is I'm doing things incorrectly. I need to repent and change my behavior. Now, how many of you have ever said that? I'm doing this. This is incorrect. I need to repent and change my behavior. You've probably all said that one time or another. And if we try to do that on our own, how effective is that? Anyone had a lot of success saying, I... I am doing bad in this area. I'm just going to stop. Cold turkey. Has, has anyone had a lot of success doing that on their own? Not a lot. <laughs> so this approach tends to be ineffective because it doesn't address the deeper belief that fuels this idolatry. The thing you treasure that leads you away from God. If we're just saying, hey, we're going to behave here. And we talked about this last week, I think, or maybe two weeks ago. Just... And I gave an example of a friend of mine who is like, I was able to get people to change behavior, but it wasn't at all effective in changing hearts. That's the moralizing approach. Now, the next is the psychological approach. Uh, Your problem is that you don't believe that God loves you as you are. So this method is ineffective because false beliefs or treasures remain. Now, what this means is, why do you not believe in your own worth? Why do you not think of that? It's because you don't accept the first part of the prayer. There is nothing I have done that could make you love me more, and there's nothing I could do that would make... I, I may have reversed that. There's nothing I have done that could make you love me less, and there's nothing I could do that would make you love me more. If, if we accept that, we don't struggle with the psychologizing approach. Okay. Because we understand that we're not. But 
So the first one is moralizing. I'm just going to be better. I'm going to pick myself by, up by my own bootstraps. I'm going to do better. The psychologizing approach is where it's like, God doesn't really love me like I am. And so, you know, I need to. And the gospel approach is, is that we're looking to something besides Christ to satisfy this desire or fear. So we need to turn to God and rely on his love and strength to change us. We're not just becoming better naturally. We're becoming better because we rely on God. We're not just, we're not just accepting ourselves as we are. We're saying God loves me. And so that allows me to change. But his love for me is not dependent upon me being better. Some of you have parents. Well, all of you have parents. Some of, but some of you have parents who you know that whatever you did, they're going to love you. They may not like what you're doing. They may say, look, you are falling short in this category. You need to work on this. Uh, you, with God's help, need to do better. That's legitimate, but you know they love you. Some of you have parents where you're like, I only thought they loved me when I was doing things that they wanted me to do. When we understand that God is more adequately pictured in the first example than the second, that helps us with a psychologizing approach and knowing that we're there. So as, a, as an individual, or if you want to go home and work on this in groups, here, is, here are some things we can do to displace our idols. First of all, we need to name our idols. We need to identify those things that are causing us to not be with God the way we should. Then we need to repent of those idols. I could, have, I could give some more verses, but you guys like to hear me read. And then we rejoice in Christ. And that is the gospel approach. That is how we become better. It's not just by saying, I'm going to be better. It's not by just saying, I am so terrible that no one could ever love me. It is by saying, I need to be better and I will be better because Christ in his sacrifice helps make me better. And that is the gospel approach. Any questions? All right. Let's close in prayer. Dear God, Thank you that you give us all we need for everlasting joy. We pray that you would help us to not try to moralize that and just say, we'll do better on our own. Try to not make that into psychology and that we are weak, but that we would rely on you. We understand that because of you, because of your love, that we can't, there's nothing we could do that would make you love us less. Uh, and, and so, we pray that you would help us to understand that and in that we would have joy and that joy would, would be beyond anything that is understood by the natural world. Pray that you would help us to rely on you for our joy and our improvement in life. Pray that as you speak to us later through your servant Travis that we would hear something that would make our lives forever benefited so that we can be more like you in all we do. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.